As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. I mean, he literally said at one point, you know, we've got our Tottenham back and it's like, oh, isn't this great? Like, we finally got everything back with, with, with complete sort of disregard to the fact that the decisions that he's made over the past few years completely led to the awful malaise and apathy and anger. Hello everybody and welcome once again to The View from the Lane, the award-winning Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. Uh, joining me, Danny Kelly, are The Athletic's Tim Spears and Charlie Eccleshare. Hello everybody. On today's episode we'll discuss the fallout from the fans forum, that uh, interview that Daniel Levy has done with Bloomberg um, a so-called buyback clause for Harry Kane and uh, how to cope um, with having Arsenal fans near and dear to you ahead of the North London derby. I speak as one whose entire family supports Arsenal, including the good lady wife. First of all, let's, I mean, so much to discuss considering uh, Charlie and Tim that we suppose haven't played a game since we last spoke because, um, of course, they don't play in midweek now. That is not, uh, that is not their issue. So let's let's try and roll together the fans forum and Daniel Levy's interview on Bloomberg. Um, I thought this was extraordinary. The fans forum, some of the things he said. First of all, can can anyone tell me, Charlie? Can you tell me when was this organised? I'm not sure exactly, and I know the uh, it was available. It, it, people who applied went sort of ballot system, but I don't think there was a huge amount of kind of advertising of it. Um, perhaps unsurprisingly, so there wasn't a kind of moment when they said roll up, roll up. Come and come and hear Daniel Levy speak. Uh, but f- so I don't know. I, I imagine in the summer sometime. Well, that, that's, that's I wanted a general feel. They couldn't have organised it at five minutes notice because it seems to me then, uh, Tim and Charlie, he's had the most extraordinary piece of luck, Daniel Levy, because if he'd held this this um, fans forum at any time in the last three years, and he hasn't done one for six years, as I understand it, it would have been people snarling and shouting and roaring. Somehow he's managed to have it on the exact week where Spurs' fans' optimism is at the most it's been at for in the last you know several years. Because if if we had lost, if we'd still maintained that one 0 defeat against Sheffield United, I think the absolute would have been very different. Um, it's, it's an extraordinary piece of luck, Tim. Yeah, remarkable. Uh, uh, yeah, there's obviously. Um... It's no coincidence it's before the derby instead of afterwards. I think you can certainly plan that. And they're probably looking at the fixture list thinking, yeah, nice, easy win over Sheffield United. So we'll do it then. Um, I'm sure it would have taken a certain amount of planning. Certainly the people 
that were involved and getting Postacoglimus on there as well. Like you say, it wasn't just done at the sort of the last minute. You could see that, I, I mean, I've, I've never met Daniel Levy, but you could see that he was nervous. He looked nervous to me. His throat sort of sounded dry. And I, I, I'm not surprised at all, really. You'd expect that. Um, being put in front of a few hundred fans but it was um it was perfect timing it was very well received it was a very sort of positive event um there weren't too many negative questions and yeah uh, everybody sort of cheered off at the end and very much like a um uh, this is a great moment to be at spurs and everybody was in um, was in very good spirits incredible really i mean I, I um took a very valuable lesson from it you know um if i was him i'd have come out with pasta coglu to make sure that i got uh, that there was applause in the room well, th- th- there was a bit of that they were all introduced at the same time and when i do when we do our live event in london in november i'm going to make sure i come out with jack pitt brooks so i get some cheers and clapping <laughs> but it was definitely a case there was definitely a, like a, a case of sort of levy like taking advantage of that of that bandwagon and that good moment there was a bit towards the start where uh, I can't remember what he was talking about. He sort of pointed at Ange and went, "Look, look, and here's and here's Ange to get like a big cheer from the crowd, like you know, look what I've done." Don't forget about Ange; he's here yeah. too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How about this yeah. guy? So, if it had been done six months ago, um, as people were throwing um, cabbages and uh, rotten tomatoes at him, he'd have had to pull Conte in front of him as like a human shield. Look, he's still here. Throw things at him. But there was a case of like, I mean, he literally said at one point, you know, we've got our Tottenham back. And it's like, oh, isn't this great? Like, we finally got everything back with, with with complete sort of disregard to the fact that the decisions that he's made over the past few years completely led to the awful malaise and apathy and anger that was there just a few months ago. But he was like, guys, look, we've got it back. Isn't this great? I do wonder as well how much, um, e- e- even had it been at a time where Levy was more unpopular or more up against it, I do think people's on how sort of willing people are online to stick the boot in. And even in a chant, because this, that's all that's still to someone kind of faceless. I do think people are generally more reserved when actually presented with a human being right in front of them in quite an intimate setting. Yeah. Um, we can speculate about that, but let's go on to what he actually said, which of course is uh, every bit is interesting. The first thing people grabbed out of it, though not the thing I want to talk about in length, is is the possibility of the club being for sale. And this is what he had to say. I've got no 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 real interest to leave Tottenham, but I have a duty to consider anything that anyone may want to propose. Um, it's not about me. It's about what's right for the club. Um, he went on to say that Spurs had received offers in the past from the Far East, Middle East and the US, but that nothing had been put on our table that we felt had been in the interest of shareholders. And then he finished off by saying, if anyone wants to make a serious proposition to the board of Tottenham, we would consider it along with our advisors. And we felt as it was in the interest of the club that we would be open to anything. That was in the, that was Bloomberg, wasn't it? I've complained to the things he said on Bloomberg, but in the interest of um, quickness here, of speed. Um, so club for sale, club open for investment. I'm very happy here. What did you make of it? I mean, it's really difficult because, I mean, I think the fact that he's given this interview is very significant. He gives very few interviews. The fact that it's to Bloomberg, um, I think, you know, the by way of explanation, it said that this is, you know, a longstanding, um, an interview that had been set up a while ago and, you know, in a kind of nothing to see here kind of way. But clearly the fact that it's Bloomberg is significant. What he said is significant. I mean, I- I'm a bit conflicted because... Uh, Definitely the fact that he's come out and said these things really matters. And I mean, it confirmed, you know, we've reported on this before. Um, 
Jack and Matt Slater did a really interesting piece. Uh, I can't remember what it was. I think last, I think it was when I was on paternity leave. I think last year sometime about this idea of whether Spurs were for sale or not. And a bit like with transfers, a lot of it comes down to semantics, you know, of, oh no, we never put a bid in. But when does a, you know, but we may have said to a club, oh, how much would it take to get your player? You know, would X amount, you know, clearly that's tantamount to pretty much the same thing. And he confirms that, you know, I guess it's kind of self-evident, you know, were a good bid, were the right bid to come in. Of course, they'd have to look at it when he says, I have a duty to consider anything that anyone may want to propose. Of course, that's true. I think what's significant as well is him saying, I've got no real interest to leave Tottenham, you know, and him saying it's not about me, it's about what's right for the club. Because, yeah, how willing he would be to say, okay, yeah, no, the right offer's come in, see you later, I'm off. Um, You know, we know how much he enjoys this role, despite all the criticism, he absolutely relishes it. Um, So, yeah, but yeah, clearly the fact that he's giving this interview is, is significant. And Tim, you've, you, you've watched this thing with a jeweler's eyepiece um, and things like the, the club, I think unlike any other stadium of, of uh, com- comparable proportions and size, doesn't have years after it was built, doesn't have a sponsor, he just sort of brushed this away. Yeah, I, 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 again, in a bit of a theme of the evening, he was obviously very happy to sort of brush over past mistakes that he's made. And yeah, he just sort of said, well, we're looking for the best possible deal and we're trying to grow the club as much as we can first with all these events that we have on and concerts and exclusive deals and whatnot. And then, you know, once the Tottenham brand is as big as it can be, then then we can go for a huge name. Um, I mean, I guess there's sort of logic in that, but equally, you know, there's been it's been four years now, and that's an awful lot of income missed out on. And a, a, a fan made a really good point with the question, which got a lot of applause. That you know, if you'd had this extra income from stadium naming rights, and of course, it's no secret that Spurs want to do this. Um, it's not like they're just keeping the name sponsor free for the authenticity of the stadium, you know. So, and they said, look, if, if you'd got this extra money and then maybe you wouldn't have had to raise ticket prices. And um, that, yeah, that question was very popular in the room and ticket prices came up uh, sort of two or three times, which was, so it was one of the most sort of popular subjects of the night. I have to say he was completely, I mean, he kind of conceded, yeah, okay, that's a good point, but he was completely unapologetic about ticket prices. You know, he apologised for the mistakes of hiring past managers, which of course is so easy to do. Um, but in terms of the, the two things that he was very unapologetic for, one were ticket prices. I mean, he said that there'll be a review into ticket pricing and everything to do with tickets. But in the same breath, he said, everything we do is to maximise the income of this club to invest in the team in the same answer. So that didn't suggest to me that they're planning on cutting uh, ticket prices anytime soon. And then the other thing was the Super League again. Again, in one breath, he admitted it was a disaster. But then in the other, he said he was only exploring the best interests of the club. So... um, those two things he was completely sort of steadfast and, and staunch on. Um, we'll get we'll get on to and what kind of club he thinks it is in a minute. Um, you're right then to say, Tim, that uh, I think another of the central planks um, of what he was on about um, was the appointment of uh, Mourinho um, and Conte, which, of course, at the current moment, he's able to contrast with the five games in success of Ange Postacoglu. There were no Nuno questions. I, and I wasn't there or, or else I would have asked one. But he's very, he's very much been airbrushed from history now, Nuno. They, they talk about the last two managers being a mistake. I'm like, at least mention Nuno. Come on. Nothing nothing about Nuno, I'm afraid. Nuno was manager of the month in one out of the two completed months he was Tottenham manager for. What other, 
That must be some sort of Premier League record. That's outstanding. Good guy, good good boss. Yeah. This is this is him speaking about two of the last three managers. Um, prior to prior to Andrew Postecoglou, the frustration of not winning and the pressure from maybe some players and from a large element of the fan base that we need to win, we need to spend money, we need to have a big manager, we need to have a big name, and it affected me. So he's blaming the players here. Um, I had gone through a period where we'd almost won with uh, Maurizio um, Pochettino, of course, referring to. We went through some very good times, didn't quite get there. We came very close and we had a change in strategy. The strategy was, let's bring in a trophy manager. We did it twice. And look, not three times you'll notice, Tim. Um, And look, you have to learn from your mistakes. They're great managers, but maybe not for this club. But for what we want, we want to play in a certain way. And if that means it has to take a little bit longer to win, maybe it's the right thing for us. That's why bringing Anjin was, from my point of view, the right decision. Applause, it says here in, in front of me. I mean, I mean, who's is he really saying? The fan base and the players forced him to bring in terrible managers. There's so much to unpack here. Um, I mean, that I thought was was really disappointing because you are the chairman. You know, the buck stops with you. You can't. You've got to just. You've got to own those decisions. And talking about, and I, I mean, he sort of does in in a bit of a phony way of saying like, yeah, I admit it affected me. But you're saying, you know, that the pressure from some players in the large end of the fan base that were it not for that, you wouldn't have appointed Mourinho or you wouldn't have appointed Conte. I think that has wound a lot of people up um, and rightly so. And look, I think there's actually, I, I mean, we've been over this a, a million times before, but I don't think in the moment appointing, look, appointing Mourinho made quite a lot of sense. There were a lot of people, pe- people may have disliked him as a person, but the logic of we've got so close, all we need now is that little nudge over the line, to a lot of people made sense. And had they appointed Apostacoglu straight after Pochettino, or at that time, say, Eddie Howe, I think a lot of fans would have said, well, yeah, it was fine appointing a Pochettino type in May 2014, but we've just reached the Champions League final. Why are we appointing Eddie Howe? We need a, you know, we need somebody who's going to win us the title or the Champions League. So I think there was some logic in it, but you've got to stand by that. And so this idea that it was kind of, you know, he didn't really want to do it, but the fans, the unrelenting pressure from the fans and players, I, I don't think that's going to wash with a lot of people. And, and by the way, as well, on Conte, I do think there's been a lot of rewriting because, again, a lot of people thought that was a good appointment at the time. You know, there were a lot of pieces written at that time saying, aha, well, he got it wrong with Mourinho, but Conte is kind of a good version of Mourinho and he'll bring the good times back. And for sort of six months, he did. So, Yes, it they ultimately it ultimately proved to be a bad a really bad decision, but I think you've got to stand by the logic that you went with and own it and I don't think he has there at all. Why didn't somebody in the room say which players were putting pressure on you? Serge Aurier, was he really <laughs> putting that much pressure on you? Was it Tanganga? Um, he he also said that there was pressure to hire a big name manager this summer. Um, he didn't suggest who that pressure was from because I don't, certainly don't think it was from any any substantial uh, part if of the fan base. Brian Hill, I think it's Brian Hill. <laughs> <laughs> Not now, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> Stop putting me under so much pressure. <laughs> it affects me. He was like, um, you know, yeah, there was there was pressure for me to buy, hire a big name manager again this summer, but you know, oh, I didn't do that. And here's Ange, cue applause, uh, look what I did, etc. Um, but then also minimizing this, un- minimizing the strategy. I know he's sort of, you know, he's not going into it at length here, but minimizing the strategy for Conte and Mourinho to 
the strategy was let's bring in a trophy manager is astonishing really because you if if he's literally just boiling it down to that and not thinking at all about the fit for the club and the players and the style of play which seemed to just be completely irrelevant is is a huge admission that he that he messed it up look th- those are us picking the edge the, the, but on the bloomberg interview which was this morning we're doing this on thursday um there was a sentence that caused my eyes to pop out of my head i mean if that's Ridiculous! I was I was listening to it off the back of something he said. We're very much a club that believes in the academy producing players that can become hopefully become superstars at Tottenham. We're not a club that can buy success. That's the reality, and we have to understand that. Beep 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 beep. What the hell does he mean? We are not a club that can buy success. Who is then? Because as far as I mean, the the Deloitte's figures rotate Spurs around eleventh richest club in the world. 10th richest club in the world, 9th richest club in the world. This will change when the Saudi Arabian nationalized clubs become part of They're roughly the 10th most the 10th most well-heeled club in the world. Um, I don't understand what he means by you can't buy success. He, they're in a perfectly good position to buy good footballers. Um, if he, you know, if he's comparing them to, I don't know, but you can help me which clubs are, 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 can outspend Spurs. There are very few of them. Um and you know, I know this is contra- this contradicts what I say about how difficult it is to win trophies in England because there are so many rich clubs. But Spurs are one of those, and it struck me a little thorn as it's been in my paw for a couple of months. When they started talking about being more data driven, Spurs, I thought that might be um, followed up by we can't buy success, and here it is. Because is this aligning Tottenham Hotspur with their income equal to? or bigger than most clubs in the world with the Brightons and Brentfords of this world who out of necessity have had to find a way to get to be successful within their remit without spending huge amounts of money. I really didn't like this at all. It it looked like to me that was an admission that he's not going to try and make Spurs successful anytime soon. So I think, Danny, the counter to that is that he more means we can't buy success in the way of a Man City or a Chelsea under Abramovich or a PSG. I guess, you know, you, would, you wouldn't say Liverpool bought success to win the title in 29-20, even though they spent a lot of money. I don't think their title win would have been characterised in that way. Likewise, Arsenal coming second last season, I don't think people would say, oh, well, they've just gone and bought it, even though they had spent a lot of money year after year. So I think you can spend a lot of money without it being seen to have bought success. That would be the other reading of that rather than, you know, we're not going to go out and spend because Spurs have spent, you know, they, they've spent a lot, just not on a kind of consistent level compared with like a Man City or a team. Because I think City, you would say, have bought success. That's a very common allegation laid at their door. If I was in the room with him when he said this, Charlie, and I take what you're saying as a sensible riposte to what I said, you know, the, the, the question has to be asked of him. Daniel, mate, you've managed to get, I'm using the mate in a passive-aggressive way that Andrew Postacogli used it, you've managed to put the debt for the stadium out till the middle of the the second half of this century, if the truth be told. So the figures tell us we are pulling in ninth, tenth most money in the world. The players tell us, and ex-pros tell me every week on Talk Sport, that Spurs don't pay um, what other people playing in wages? They're sixth, seventh in the in the Premier League, so there is a yawning gap between those realities. A massive amount of money coming in, not a huge amount of money going out. They, they spent a, a net because of the Kane deal. They spent a net of about 150 million 
in this transfer window, which is pretty good by European standards. Very good, actually. Um, but you can't, you can't. I don't think you can sit there leading the charge for a Super League and at the same time saying, well, we can't really afford to be competing with these other clubs for success, Tim. It doesn't make any sense to me. I've tried to get Charlie to agree, but now I'm going to... I've tried that. I'm going to <laughs> mum now. Yeah. But I would say the the, the a really per- personal point you made there is wages. And you, you are never going to compete regularly with the top two or three unless unless you match them on wages. You know, that's, that's, that's more the issue here. You, you know, there are always bargains to be found in Arsenal and Liverpool... Um, and then, you know, the next level down, Newcastle and Brighton have done very, very well with sort of transfer fees around the, you know, 20 to 50, 60 million mark. It can be done. And Spurs are in that bracket, of course, but it's wages really. Unless you're going to match the wages of City and United, you're never going to be consistently in that top four. And that, that's, that's the bigger issue in terms of spending for me. But you, you don't see that changing anytime soon under Levy. Um, before before we before we round this up, um, one other thing you said, Charlie, was that there was a buyback clause for somebody called Harry Kane at Bayern Munich. Um, why did he say that? I think it was, um, yeah, again, well, again, like what you were saying before about the comments about not necessarily spending to compete. I think it's one that needed a bit more context. And by the sounds of it, it's not so much a buyback. It's more if he were going to go to a Premier League club, Spurs would have first refusal. Um, so they'd be able to nip in. But obviously that's at a point at which Bayern wanted to sell um, and Kane wanted to come back. So uh, yeah, it's not quite as uh, straightforward maybe as buyback makes it out. I also thought it was, um, it was kind of the wrong timing for that. I mean, obviously he was asked, so he had to answer it. But I don't know, it, it just feels like I think Spurs have done really well to kind of move on. We have so to, far yeah, as Kane. people. Are, yeah, yeah I think it's been, I think it's been amazing actually how little he's been present really. And obviously that's because Spurs have started well. I'm sure, you know, if they go a few games without scoring a goal or many goals, it will come up again. But uh, yeah, that then obviously, that was kind of the first thing that leaked out on the Tuesday night. So that kind of dominated the initial coverage of it. Um, but look, we've seen it before, you know, Liverpool had a similar thing, I think, with Michael Owen and they didn't opt to use it. Arsenal, same as Cesc Fabregas and they didn't opt to use it. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll have to see. I think it's a long way off. This becomes a going concern anyway. But he said, but it's, I was going to say, I mean, he, he was asked it, but he certainly didn't have to admit it and then reiterated it in the Bloomberg interview. It's obviously very deliberate that he was, that he was revealing this. And, you know, from next summer onwards, this is, this will be a, 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 a regular theme, you know, or if a Premier League club's in for in for Kane, he could come back. You know, he's 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 created something now. He could easily have just said, "Oh, I can't discuss the terms of this confidential deal," but he very deliberately was like, "Yeah, of course, of course, of course, we got buyback. Yeah, sure." So I'm not completely sure what the motivation behind him doing that is. Beyond that, no details have been given, certainly from the Spurs side. So it's kind of like, oh, you know, that's not something we would discuss. But then, but like you say, they could easily have straight batted. Um, that question, but I guess it does. You know, <laughs> does it act as a deterrent to other Premier League clubs? Quite possibly. Um, again, I thought I thought it was trying to curry favour with the fans a little bit. And okay, that's PR. I, I get that. Though again, if I had been there, and it's no surprise I wasn't when you're back here, I'd say, <laughs> well, we would never buy back clause. We hadn't sold him, would we? And I'd just sit there. <laughs> and that's when you'd be turfed out. Yeah. Just like you were at Wimbledon all those years ago. Do you know what? Um, people will say, Danny, you'd be in trouble. And I always quote Philip Marlowe in the Maltese Falcon. A certain amount of trouble I can deal with, Charlie. Hi. 
Hi everyone, David Ornstein here, and I want to tell you about The Athletic's new bite-sized podcast, The Daily Football Briefing. If you're one of those people who are just too busy for a regular-length podcast in the morning, this is right up your street. In just over 10 minutes, we'll bring you bang up to date with the biggest stories in football, all before you've finished your first coffee of the day. It'll be Matt Slater on a club's ongoing takeover saga, our club experts reflecting on big overnight matches, and let's be honest, me explaining those transfer stories that just won't go away. That's the Daily Football Briefing, every weekday morning, available wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Yeah, welcome back to the second part of the view from the lane. I'm Danny Kelly, Charlie Eccleshare, and Tim Spears are with me, which is great. Um, really bad news coming out of the Spurs camp. Look, over the last forty-eight hours, um, right up to the last seconds of the transfer window, um, it was assumed that Ivan Perisic would be on his way, and yet he's still at Spurs and has been a really, really excellent substitute in some of the games. Um, his corner for um, the Richarlison equaliser against Sheffield United was a good example of somebody who has a skill set that can, even at 34 years of age, can be very, very useful in the Premier League. So uh, Spurs have announced that uh, the Croatian international has got a complex uh, anterior cruciate ligament, ACL injury to his right knee, and he was undergoing surgery. He's 34 years of age. I didn't think even Perisic was going to mean anything to me. And now this seems like an actual blow to Spurs to me. Yeah, this is one of the many things that a few sort of weeks ago you'd, you'd be surprised at hearing yourself saying. But yeah, I think I think I think it is quite a blow. You mentioned the assist the other day. He's got thirteen assists since the start of last season, which is an awful lot. And obviously, you know, that's not in a great team last year. He's got quality, technique, and set pieces and experience. And Spurs don't have a, a huge amount of that. Certainly on that side of the pitch, if you think Adogi and Solomon are the, are the, are the two on that side at the moment. He's got the bit of a sort of a Hoiberg role of, of coming on and, and calming down a game or seeing Spurs through or adding quality and um, and helping them win the game like he did the other day. So um, there isn't really a direct replacement for him in the squad. You know, you've got Ben Davis as a more defensive option on the left or, or Solomon as a more attacking option. But at the moment, there's no one else to fill that role. I mean, it, it, but it is the in, the injury, I suppose. The only positive is it. You, you've mentioned some players there and it is a um, an opportunity for... Brandon Johnson will presumably get more game time now than he might have expected. Brian Hill, when he gets um, it gets fit, is in the squad. Um, he may get more game time. This is uh, maybe I'm just being optimistic. And Spurs have started well, but Charlie, this is the classic. The one door closes, and I, of course, I wished Ivan Perisic nothing but the best of luck getting fit again. Um, that must look like a hard road when you're 34 years of age. But it is a it is an opportunity for other people in the squad. It is. I do, though, agree with Tim that he does have a unique skill set within this team as someone who can come on and cross the ball really well. You know, I think it's bad news for Richarlison, who both his goals so far this season have come from Perisic crosses. 
he is a difference maker just in you know and I'm not suggesting he's still you know he's not going to get the ball and race past a few defenders but he is somebody who can come on and off for something different like like on the weekend you know that equaliser doesn't happen without his set piece delivery and it and it bailed them out a few times last season as well but I did I mean he played 59 games for club and country last season at the age of 33 and 34 he played on um, the 17th of December, Saturday 17th of December for Croatia against Morocco in the World Cup third place playoff. Nine days later, he started for Spurs away at Brentford. Started both those games. I mean, that is incredible for someone of that age. And I've no idea if, you know, that level of workload makes you more susceptible to this sort of thing. It sounds like it's, you know, more of just a freak injury, but um, it's just a real shame for him because he is normally, as that shows, so durable. Um and you know, for this sort, of, and there have been a lot of ACLs already this season, which is it's, it's such a horrible injury. I mean, two more things you say is one, he's unlikely now to ever play for Spurs again. I think he's, he's out of contract next summer, Charlie. That's right, isn't it? And the other thing is, you've got him and Larice now, two of the real top earners at the club, probably in the top sort of five or six players who just won't kick a ball for the club again. And that's a huge amount of money being spent on these two players. I just hope he, for whatever makes him happy, I hope he gets back to whatever health he needs to get back to. Real shame. Um. Speaking of someone who we know very, very well, let's turn to someone who we hardly know at all. Scott Munn. Um, has he st- you, you've written a story about him, Charlie. Uh, has he actually started at Spurs? Yes, today is Scott Monday. <laughs> Get out the bunting. Yeah, he, it's his first official day today. He was meant to start on July the 1st, but that got delayed. I think it's taken a while for him, uh, his exit from City Football Group, uh, to have been sorted. But yeah, he comes in and, you know, he's got a pretty big role kind of overseeing all the footballing departments um and you know levy's eyes and ears i think he'll almost have a ceo role um and obviously one of the big things he's got to do is bring in a director of football a position Spurs has been without since paratici left in april um yeah i mean you know he maybe he'll benefit as well from the fact that postacoglu's come in as a relatively unknown manager from Australia you know hadn't done much in Europe only had those two seasons at Celtic I say only I'm sure Postacoglu himself would bristle at that Scott Mann has no experience of Europe managing of um, you know operating in European football so but yeah maybe people will give him more the benefit of the doubt given what Postacoglu's done all right deep breath everybody the North London derby is coming um the teams meet um at an extraordinary time um, I'll come on to the stats about what, what the game is very quick, not very quick, but just uh, it does. It, I don't know about t- Tim. I'll ask you about this bit uh, because you're a Wolves fan. Who is their local derby? Who is their big, big, um, passionate derby against? Uh, I assume you're asking so I can so I can just tell the listeners because because you know you you, you must know Danny, a man of your football knowledge. I don't think you play Walsall very often, do you? It's uh, it's it's West it's West Bromwich Albion. It hurts me to say that name. In fact, I used to, I used to, um, I used to live on Albion Street when um, in Wolverhampton, and it pained me so much. I nearly turned the flat down to be honest. Every time I had to type out the address to say the word Albion, it hurts me. Mrs. Kelly is such an Arsenal sport that when she was searching for a flat twenty-five years ago, um, at the bottom of the of the Essex Road on the borders between Islington and Stoke Newton, there is a Tottenham Road. And she liked the flat there and turned it down because it was on Tottenham Road. <laughs> so it can be done, Ch- uh, Tim. It can be done. Um, I only mention this because there is something there is something specific about the North London derby. I'm not saying it's more passionate than the Celtic Rangers derby or Liverpool Everton or the Manchester derby 
or, or, or ones in the northeast. But there's something very specific about it. In a huge city, the population is mixed up in such a way that I think, for instance, I think, you know, in the Glasgow derby, some people support Celtic, some people support Rangers for cultural reasons and so on. It's all over the place in North London. Um, and as a result, we get a person like me brought up in Islington in the shadow of the Arsenal Stadium who loves the Spurs. Um, my brothers and sisters, who I adore, all support Arsenal. Um, the lady wife, I mean, I could have met, I, I suppose a bit like Tottenham Road, I could have made a choice when I first met her to back off um, on the grounds that she was an Arsenal season ticket holder, but I did not. And here we are. Um, I have to tell you that um, I've asked and I put out for a request for people to tell us how they survive having a wife or a husband or a brother or a sister or a dad who's, who's on either side of this derby. Um, I'll be honest with you, we watch the game in two separate rooms. We're lucky enough to have two televisions and we'll watch the game in separate rooms. example I always give Tim, uh, Charlie and the listeners is um, I'm over it now, but for about three or four years and until semi-recently, um, if Spurs went behind when they were playing on the television, I would go and sit in the car outside the house. I was so upset with it, right? And Alex Blesser would come to the door and I could always tell if if it was still 1-0 against Spurs or if they conceded again, she would have a cup of tea in her hand to give me to stay in the car. If she came to the door without a cup of tea, I knew they'd equalised. I could go back in and watch it again. And so it goes on. Listen, let me give you some of these. This is from Joe Sayers. It's Joe, J-O-E. He says, hi, chaps. My dad is a gooner. Uh, most of that side of the family are sad, are sadly. My dad actually played football with Charlie George when he was at school. That's Charlie George, the Arsenal legend from their double-winning team of 1971, which means he must have been going to school at the Holloway School, where Charlie went to not so very far when I was brought up. Anyway, that's not the story worth telling. North London Derby, we tend not to speak until after the game. Never any animosity, it's just Derby Day. I grew up going to an Arsenal pub. Everybody knew my dad and that I was a Spurs fan. One North London Derby, I was in the pub with a mate from school, also a Spurs fan. We were the only ones. I told him we'd be fine, just don't go crazy if we score. We were trading 1-0 late in the game, and then Darren Anderson, I think, equalised for us. My mate stands still. Barely a sound. However, I have completely lost it. Going nuts in front of the screen. Give it all I've got. Telling everyone where they can go. Arsenal kick off. Straight down the other end. Get a penalty and win 2-1. I got absolutely hammered. My dad stood at the other side of the pub, giving me a look and said, well, son, you deserve that. All these years later, and I still can't just stand there when we score. Keep up the award-winning work and come on, you Spurs. Thank you, Joe, for that. Yep, you can... Um, you can it can get carried away in the wrong places. This is from GB, who says, I'm married an Arsenal fan. One daughter followed her, and one daughter followed me. And to be honest, that has made it very easy to decide which child is my favourite. Yes, yes, GB. I don't like this business, so I haven't got favourites. If she's a Spurs fan, that's your favourite. Buy her a nice, bigger Christmas present. Percy, best friend is a gooner. After he moved, I met him for the North London Derby in January 2014 at a neutral bar he chose. I, of course, show up in a Spurs kit to an Arsenal bar packed with gooners and got to watch for Walcott's 2-0 nonsense. Still haven't got him back for that. Um, I love this. I absolutely. This is from Ben, and we'll make this the last one. I'll get to your views. Uh, I was. This is from Ben. I was the best man for my mate. He's an Arsenal fan. I spent the whole speech destroying Arsenal, their history, their weird fans, uh, with very few jokes. 
a rant, essentially, that absolutely bombed. I'm not sure he's ever forgiven me, but it had to be done. I love I love the fact that the, 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 the North London derby is, you know, so intermingled, Charlie. Yeah, there is a theory. I know a few people have that Arsenal and Spurs, people will get upset about this. They're, they're very, very similar in lots of ways. When you look at, like, the demographics of the fans and that sort of thing, you've mentioned there about families that that are mixed. I mean, even, like, you know, the Jewish fan base supposedly of Spurs, Arsenal has a very similar level um, when it comes to Jewish fans, which is no surprise because, you know, North London is, is basically, you know, where I, where I grew up in North London, it was basically 50-50 Arsenal and Spurs fans. Um, and so I think there is kind of an understanding among the two. Even if they despise each other, there's kind of an understanding of what the other goes through. And I think they share a certain level of pessimism and fatalism certainly going into North London derbies I don't find there tends to be much trash talking I find it tends to be more I've got a bad feeling about this one yeah but I've also yeah I've also got a bad feeling about it you know I know we tend to win this game at home yeah but I know but we tend to win this game at home uh, but even so I don't know there's a bit of one-upmanship in that way rather than a we're gonna batter you kind of way no I, I agree that the this is the one fixture, even more than, say, Chelsea. We just want it out of the way. Hopefully, um, you know, at, at the at the Emirates, Spurs can get away with a draw um, and everyone can, uh, honour is satisfied, we all move on. All right, I, this has all been just putting off talking about the actual game. Before we get into that, though, uh, Tim has had a chat with the Athletics Arsenal correspondent, Art de Roche, to get the opposition view. Right, joining us live from the Elstree branch of McDonald's. <laughs> Art de Roche, hello, my friend. How are you? Hello. Um, I'm starting to get a bit hungry. <laughs> but um, other than that, I'm, I'm all good. I'm all good. How are you, Tim? I'm good, mate. Service isn't as fast as it used to be, is it? No. Um, while you're waiting for your burger, we should explain you yeah, a bit of context. Art's just been to watch uh, Arsenal in UEFA Youth League action against PSV this afternoon, ahead of uh, them both playing the Champions League tonight. And he's very kindly uh, jumped into the nearest McDonald's at the request of the producer uh, to get some good Wi-Fi. So here we go. So before your quarter pounder arrives, mate, yeah, we're here to chat North London Derby. Arsenal got a game before that, as we as we said, but this is the big one. This is the one that's getting an awful lot of national attention and certainly the highlight of the weekend of the football weekend in England. There's obviously uh, anticipation because Spurs are doing so well, 13 points, same as Arsenal. What's the sort of general feeling of Arsenal fans? Normally uber confident going into this game with good reason. Uh, how are they feeling ahead of this one? Are they a bit nervous with Spurs doing so well or has that not crept in yet? I don't think it's really crept in, if I'm being totally honest. There is still a sense that Arsenal haven't fully clicked into gear just yet and there's almost... A feeling that this could be the game where it happens. We all know that Tottenham are very different this season in terms of how they want to play football and the success that they've had with that so far this year. But Arsenal haven't really faced the team that's really wanted to play against them. So I think that could make for quite an interesting watch on both ends. But in terms of just the general vibe uh, from Arsenal fans, I think they're optimistically waiting for this one. I don't think the, the nerves have crept in just yet. In terms of weaknesses that Spurs could look to exploit, what are the weaknesses individually that you've seen from Arsenal this season that Spurs might look at? The biggest thing, and this was quite a hard one because I guess like Tottenham, Arsenal have had most of the ball in their games. But for me, it's just the concentration lapses 
early on in games, particularly at the Emirates. So Arsenal are really good at keeping clean sheets away from home. I think they've got more than any other team in that respect. But at home, they ship goals for fun. This year, this calendar year, 2023, they let in seven goals from the first shot they faced in games. That's more than any other team in the Premier League. So I think if they were to Tottenham, start really quickly and kind of catch Arsenal off guard, that might be their best bet. Because aside from that, what we've seen from Arsenal is what we've seen throughout the past almost 18 months, I'd say, which is um, a team who are very confident on the ball and also a lot more willing to almost just take the sting out of the game and play at their pace. So that that would be the route that I'd see that would be most successful for Tottenham, kind of catching Arsenal cold if they can. Have you seen much of Spurs yet? I've seen bits and pieces. I've not watched full games apart from the Manchester United game. but. Um, what I have seen, I've obviously been quite impressed. I did watch the Brentford game as well. And the one thing, I'm not sure what your thoughts are on this. Um, obviously, Arsenal have been playing this way for a few years now. And there are times where I can see that it's very early on in Tottenham kind of evolving their style of play. So, yeah, you can say your opinion on this. But for me, I, I feel like if Arsenal, let's almost say, have the ball play, I think that could be quite um, a decent way for them to just open up Spurs even more. They haven't really faced teams good enough to exploit that so far, I think. Uh, Man United was the biggest test they had and were it not for some poor finishing from United, you know, Spurs could easily have been sort of two behind in that game and, and we really would have sort of seen a big test to them. And yeah, the, the other one, the Sheffield United game at the weekend was very difficult because Sheffield United had a five-man defence in their penalty area for most of the game, which obviously is unlikely to be the case this weekend. It will be interesting how they start the game. I remember last season at the Emirates, Arsenal came racing out the traps and um, I think it was it was still only one all at half time, wasn't it? But but it was Spurs was, was sort of taken aback by that. Um, we've got this piece coming out uh, towards the end of the weekend before the game, asking fans for their opinions really and on what they think of both the teams and the clubs, which is always an interesting dynamic. You know, the thing that interested me when I started covering Spurs last year was that Spurs had finished above Arsenal for the previous six seasons in a row, and yet there was still this sort of inferiority complex amongst many of the fan base. And ahead of that first uh, North London derby almost a year ago, there was so much pessimism from Spurs fans. Uh, and, you know, this was before we knew what would unfold in the season, obviously. And Arsenal fans were, were cocky, to be honest. And and I guess, you know, that's justified by a lot of things, including the home record against Spurs. Spurs have only won once there since 1993. How do you how do you see that in terms of how Arsenal fans view Spurs as a club at the moment, not, not just not just Postacoglu and the team? Yeah, as a club, there is still a bit of, Almost like a little brother kind of complex, I'd call it. Spurs fans listening, I um, love that. No, I, I don't mean it in a disrespectful way. <laughs> no, I know, you, um, yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. So a little spoiler for the piece, I guess. <laughs> when I spoke to one of the fans for this, he said Spurs will just get praised after two games, winning two games on the bounce, and all of a sudden the, the conversation will be, can Spurs go all the way? It feels like the perception outside is a lot different. Um than it is to Arsenal, where, say, if Spurs were to win a game, or even lose, sorry, it would be, okay, what happens when Spurs are actually playing well? <laughs> um, so there is a little bit of, I guess, needle in that sense, where it feels like Arsenal fans feel Arsenal have to do more to get praise in a widespread kind of fashion. But um, in terms of the team, as you kind of mentioned, 
I think Ange is the big difference where they actually kind of like him. I don't think there's there's a I don't think there is an Arsenal fan that dislikes Ange. Yeah, you'd be hard pressed to dislike him as a person and his yeah. personality. And that's where a different feeling sets in where I wouldn't go as far as saying envy, but maybe more annoyance that it seems that Tottenham have got this appointment right. <laughs> <laughs> because you could see what was going wrong with Conte, with Mourinho, with those more high profile managers. Whereas with Ange, it seems like they've got someone who's actually got their eyes on Tottenham uh, and the club's best kind of interest at heart. So from an Arsenal perspective, they've seen the benefits of that uh, with Mikel Arteta uh, over the past three years. And now you can kind of see, oh, okay, Tottenham are slowly but surely getting on this path as well, which, again, I think it's more an annoyance than, <laughs> than an envy. <laughs> it's going to be fun either way. <laughs> yeah. Be a dull match. No, uh, no. Good stuff. Right. Your fries have just turned up, mate, so we better let you go. <laughs> uh, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it and uh, enjoy the match. Cheers. You too. Well, thank you very much, Tim and Art. All right, let's get on to it. Some statistics for you. Spurs face Arsenal on Sunday with both sides going into the fixture unbeaten. This is only the third time this has happened in league history. Of course, it's a very early in, in the fixtures, you know. Um, it also happened in 1961. Um, Spurs won 4-3 and went on to win the title. It happened in 1990, a 0-0 draw at Highbury. It's also a fixture this which has really, and I'm sure you're both aware of this, Tim and Charlie, not this game at Arsenal has not been a strong one for Spurs. They've just won once in their last 30 Premier League away games at Arsenal, drawing 11 and losing 18. Um, they're winless in the last 12, uh, losing eight and drawing four. Since that infamous 3-2 victory in November 2010, Eunice Cup Bulls late header, I think. Spurs have been two down. Yeah, that's correct. I would say, to quite a partridge, I would say that's famous rather than infamous. <laughs> well, it's one of the ones where they show it on Eurosport or whichever back channel I'm watching. Um, they and I, I always, oh, that's on now. I'll watch that again, will I? Gareth Bale running around and then... Van der Vaart. Yeah, K- Kabul, Kabul has a, a rehearsal for the winning header, doesn't he? Which goes just wide and then Arsenal do exactly the same high line and get caught out with it. Can I just give a stat as well, from which I worked out? Uh, last season, this is an exclusive... Um, <laughs> I worked out last season was the biggest aggregate victory either team had ever had in the Premier League derbies um, in any season, 5-1. Which given our, there was a period where Arsenal were winning titles and Spurs were plodding around in lower mid-table and even fighting relegation in one of those title wins, I think it's pretty remarkable and tells you something about where in those two matches uh, the gap was between the two teams. I mean, you know, that one at the Spurs stadium in particular, but a ground Arsenal hadn't won out in the league since 2014. Arsenal went and won well. And so that's, you know, and, and I think there's 24 points between these teams last season. So it's amazing really that we go into it thinking, you know, Spurs, well, you, you don't because you're a Spurs fan, but I think objectively, it's really hard to say, what, you know, how good a chance they have. I think what we can say is that they'll give it a go. And that may mean they'll lose by a few goals, but they, it could mean they'll win. I don't, but I don't think they're going to go there and, you know, just sort of sit back and hope for the best. And I'm, I'm doing a piece looking at Postacoglu in derby matches. And, you know, he basically does what he always does, which is to not compromise and to play his way. Um, and there are some really interesting examples of that in his past, both at Celtic, but even more so when he was in Japan, because obviously when he was at Celtic, 
they were normally the best team in the league, you know, in large part thanks to him. Um, so I think it's going to be an amazing game. I just can't see how it will be anything other. And I know that can often curse matches, but even even if there aren't loads of goals, and I think there probably will be, I just think the level of it, the standard of it, the intention of both teams to attack, it's going to be fascinating. Both teams have hoovered up the ball. They've hoovered up territory so far this season. Who's going to be on the back foot? You know, obviously Arsenal have the home advantage, so you'd expect Spurs might have to do a fair bit more defending than what they have done in their previous matches this season. We saw at Burnley a, a little bit of back footing, but because the opposition are coming at them may, may benefit Spurs. Yeah, yeah, and I've said on this podcast before that there is that belief at Spurs that actually having teams attack them is no bad thing and they can spring a surprise and hit them on the counter. I mean, even in the Emirates fixture last season in the first half, Spurs played on the counter and got their penalty and therefore goal through uh, a quick counter-attack. And they had a couple more where, you know, they were sort of a pass away from being in. Um, So, you know, they know they can hurt this Arsenal team on the counter. I think Arsenal have looked vulnerable to counter-attacks, even with um, Declan Rice in the team. So, it's yeah, I think it's going to be a fascinating and really entertaining game. Tim, I'm a complete hypocrite, of course, having called, demanded, stood on the church spires, screaming for Spurs to get on the front foot. Of course, if I was managing the team for this game, I'd leave Solomon out and play Hoiberg as a third midfielder. Um, and let and let um, Kulusevski, Madison, and uh, and Son do their best. He's not going to do that, though, is he? He all the evidence is he will pick the most attacking team he's got and have a go for it. He'll be bold. He won't be uh, reckless. I don't. I don't think. And the counter is a really good point to make. And yeah, maybe Burnley was a very light dress rehearsal for that. But Arteta will equally will know that 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 that, that uh, facing counter attacks is a weakness of theirs. So. Although they both love having the ball, it might be a case of, well, we'd rather you have the ball, actually. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. I mean, it, it, it won't be any more different to last year. Um, whereas, yeah, Charlie says it was it was like batting down the hatches at the start and let's try and survive the first 20 minutes. But it was worse than that. Batting down the hatches is one thing. That's a, that's a strategy. To me, it looked like they were inert Spurs. They just didn't have a way to be involved in the game. They had no plan just to sit there and wait to lose. Even at 3-1 down at the Emirates, admittedly with 10 men, with 20 minutes left, they took off uh, Richarlison and Son for Basuma and Matt Doherty in a let's, you know, a damage limitation exercise. And doesn't matter, you know, you're, you, you may be losing, you may be a man down, but I think that for a lot of Spurs fans, possibly yourself included, Danny, was the final straw for, with Conte. Uh, extraordinary thing that he did in that game. And it was a, it was a, it was a resignation note in all but name, wasn't it? Let, let's be truthful. But that's what's nice about this weekend is that Spurs fans go into it probably with that sort of inherent, oh, you know, it's Arsenal away, we'll probably lose. But the, I think they they know, as Charlie says, that the, that their team will give it a go and they'll be probably proud of their performance, which is which is a nice feeling to go into it with. Um, and it, yeah, tactically it'll be interesting. I think it'll be more, more it'll think it'll be a proper ding dong and there'll be goals in it. Um, but in terms of selection, that's the really interesting thing for me is does Richarlison come in because, um, you know, Solomon's, done okay but I'd much rather have Richarlison in this game a big game you know he's got that big game experience he's got the re- he's really got the attitude for occasions like this he revels in these occasions I'd I'd rather see him in the team and I hope he does bring him in and maybe he could um, conspire to get his first ever goal for Spurs with a foot am I right thinking that all the goals he scored so far have been headers this is not just because I'm always pointing right, out yeah. what a good header he is you'd expect him to have scored with a left or right foot by now or off his bottom but they've all gone in off his head. 
fantastic uh, show. So much to get through. Um, thank you, Tim. Thank you, Charlie. Thank all of you for listening. Um, of course, my mouth is dry just thinking about the North London Derby. Let me remind you that the show has its own official home on Twitter these days at VFTL Podcast. And you can email us at VFTL at theathletic.com. And for the best Spurs coverage anywhere, and I mean that, make sure you sign up to The Athletic itself. Take advantage of our limited time offer of just £1 a month for 12 months. Simply go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod to subscribe. See you all on the other side. The Athletic.